Hello, my name is Phil Lawler. I'm Senior Fellow at the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College, and I welcome you to my Book of the Month Club. Every month, I arrange to have a conversation with the author of a recently published book that I've found particularly interesting, something that offers a provocative perspective on one or more of the topics that are of particular interest to our center. Those topics are education in the liberal arts, the defense and promotion of marriage and family life, active Christian involvement in civic life, the arts, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. I hope these podcasts will stimulate further conversations as well as interest in our center. If you enjoy what you hear today, please check back to the website of the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture and take a look at some of our other conversations in this Book of the Month series, as well as other offerings from our center. Please also sign up for regular email notices about coming events, both online presentations and live events. Finally, if you're able, please support our work by making a contribution to the work of the Center. You'll find a handy form on our website as well. All contributions are appreciated and all are tax deductible. Now on to this month's conversation. My guest today is Paul Kengor, who is a professor of political science at Grove City College and director of the Institute for Faith and Freedom and an editor of The American Spectator. Paul Kengor is the author of a new book, The Worst of Indignities, The Catholic Church on Slavery. It's a remarkable resource that puts in one place an enormous number of statements from church leaders dating back to their early days of Christianity and shows fairly conclusively, I think, that the Catholic Church has always been in the forefront of opposition to slavery. I'm going to speak to Paul Kengor about this book and about why he felt it was necessary today. And I'll begin the way I always begin these sessions, by asking, why did you write this book? Yeah, well, the way that it came about, Phil, I was, it was, it was the summer of 2020, and what a disaster that was with the, with the protests in the streets and mm-hmm. the rise of, of BLM responding to the George Floyd killing initially. And then, of course, uh, you know, racial animosity just kind of spilled out everywhere, and before you knew it, the protests against what happened with George Floyd and allegations of police brutality turned into a thing where you had all sorts of leftist groups all over the country that were just tearing down statues of everybody. And it, and it went from protesting George Floyd to tearing down statues of you know, Stonewall Jackson and Confederate soldiers and generals and right. people like Jefferson Davis, which you know you could understand some of that. To before you know it, they're tearing down you know, Columbus, uh, right. <laughs> they're tearing down statues of St. Hanipero Sarah at, outside of all the missions that he founded throughout the state of California, you, you know, a man that Pope Francis had canonized, of all things. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wrote a piece for Crisis Magazine on how the Catholic Church had opposed slavery and racism from the very beginning, longer than any other living institution that I could think of. And Michael Warren Davis, who was the editor of Crisis Magazine at the time, I think he gave it the title, The Catholic Church, The First Abolitionists. Mm-hmm. It was probably about 2,000 words, longer than the, the typical crisis piece, but Michael thought it merited more words. I talked about 
early encyclicals, papal bulls, councils, church councils. And my old friend, Scott Hahn, saw it. And Scott, I've known Scott for a long time, ever since I came into the church in, in April 2005. And Scott runs Emmaus Road Publishing through the St. Paul Center. He had been after me to do a book <laughs> with him for a while and and asked me if I would do a book on the subject. And at the time, I was working on, I think, four or five books. <laughs> I, I said, I said, I, I can't. I really, I just can't. I can't. And, and he said, well, well, take your time. We'll figure <laughs> out a time schedule that works. So we laid out a schedule where this would come out in uh, around the summer of 2023. It seemed feasible. So that's what we did. And even though you know the timing, of course, would have been even better in the summer of 2020, I think this message of showing how the church has opposed these things for so many centuries, even millennia, is something that most Catholics don't know. I mean, most people don't know generally. Most Catholics don't even know. Right. So I thought it was important to uh, to get the message out, and we, we got it out. Well, I think I thought it was important. The reason I wanted to do this conversation with you is that I want to recommend this book as just a terrific source because you've packed quite a bit into it about papal encyclicals, about early councils of the church, about the history of saints and the opposition to slavery that runs through the history of the church and makes it particularly ironic, as you're saying, in that awful summer of 2020, that the Catholic Church became one of the targets. And it wasn't just Unipara It was statues of Our Lady and churches in general were targets of violent attack on the spurious grounds that the Catholic Church is somehow associated with slavery. Yeah, that's right. And there could be, I mean, nothing really further from the truth. And in fact, the earliest church, some of the earliest church statements, well, I mean, you could go back to the Council of Agda in the year 506, but you could almost formally start the conversation officially, I guess, on paper, go back to statements from the year 1434, 1435. And I mean, if in fact, pick Pick the year, so 1434, that would be Creator Omnium. That was done by Eugene the Fourth, and go to go to the year for, go to the year 1435, which I think is a per, is a is a really good year to pick. That was in fact that was January 1435, and then Eugene the came out with with Sicut Dudum, which was which was formally called which was the title of which was against the enslaving of black natives from the Canary Islands. I mean, if that, if that doesn't speak to what, what it was about, I don't know what does. And you know, that statement, 1435, that's almost 400 years. It's 400 years exactly before the Brits and Wilberforce right. were abolishing slavery. That's you know, 430 years before the end of the American Civil War. And I, I quote in the book, former Villanova professor Shannon D. Williams, who said that the Catholic Church is, quote, the first global institution to declare that black lives did not matter. And she said that, quote, the church had taken the leading role in the histories of slavery, segregation and white supremacy, unquote. And I find statements like that just astonishing. The documentary evidence shows that the Catholic Church was is the longest running global institution that really said just the opposite. And it, it's something that makes me as a convert to Catholicism 
so proud to be Catholic and really kind of awestruck that the church was before so many other countries, so many other organizations, so many other groups. We, we really did lead the way. You also cite uh, Thomas Sowell at some point in your book. I don't have the page here, but he, he makes a point that American leaders were condemning African slavery at a time when other countries were not. Now, you mentioned Wilberforce and the British beat us. They abolished slavery before we did. But what these have in common is Christian civilizations. And the the impetus against slavery has always come from Christianity. That's exactly right. Yeah. In fact, Sol, I quote him quite a bit. And he, he pointed out that slavery has been around for thousands of years. He knows this. He understood it. I mean, he's he studied it. The people of every color, people of every race, um, you know, whites were being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I talk about the period from about 1535 to about 1735, when there were over a million white European slaves being held and owned by blacks in Northern Africa. And what Sol points out is that America is not unique because we had slavery, because pretty much every country, every culture, every empire has, you know, going back probably about 8,000 years, ancient Mesopotamia. But Sol points out that what's unique about America is that we did what we did to end slavery and not just end it in the way that, say, the Brits did, the Italians did, and others did. We ended it in the bloodiest civil war, uh, the bloodiest war in our nation's history. Uh, about 600,000 people were killed in the civil war. In fact, some of the latest numbers, a, a scholar contacted me after this book came out and said, no criticism of you. You use the figure 600,000 Americans dead in the civil war. That's what everybody uses. But it looks like the figure is probably closer to 700,000 based on the latest research. And he said, you also should know, and you probably could have included in your book, there were only 30 million Americans mm-hmm. at that time. So 600,000, 700,000 dead Americans in the Civil War, that's more than all Americans killed in all wars in the nation's history combined. Yeah. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, out them all up. And, and only then do you get close to the number of people killed in the Civil War. That was largely white American boys killing white American boys in order to free slaves in, in the case of the North. So that's what makes America unique. Going through the hell that we went through to end slavery, which in the case of America, the abolitionist movement here was led, of course, not by the Roman Catholic Church, but by abolitionist white Protestants, even people like John Brown, who's considered by some to be the first terrorist in America. <laughs> he was he was a militant anti-slaver. So it's um, that's something about America that ought to be appreciated. And, and, and one thing, Phil, I was kind of hoping that maybe some black Americans who read this book might come away with some degree of um, solace, maybe some comfort knowing that, uh, hey, you're not alone. Wait till you see all the different people throughout history that have been taken into slavery. Sure. This is something that almost everyone has had to experience. Um, it wasn't just black Americans, as awful as it was for, for, uh, for black Americans. You know, we're recording this on October 6th, and tomorrow is the 
Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, which means the anniversary of the Battle of Lepanto, when I think of the thousands of Christian galley slaves who were rowing for for the Ottoman Empire, right, and were released when uh, Don John of Austria won that battle. It was it was fairly commonplace. That's what happened if one nation uh, won the war, the other nation was enslaved. That happened very frequently. It happened all the time. In fact, um, at Lepanto, roughly 15,000 Christian slaves right. were, were freed from, from Turkish enslavement just in that one day, October 7th, 1571. And in fact, those Christian slaves would have been, some of them would have been my ancestors. My, you wouldn't know it from my last name, Kengor, which is Polish. And actually, uh, the word slave comes from Slavs or Slavus in Latin, which comes from the Slavs. So in my, in my, in, you know, my father's people way back then. But on my mother's side, my mother is 100% Italian. Her family was from Reggio Calabria at the boot of Italy, right across from Sicily. And they would have, um, their people would have been enslaved by Muslim slavers. Muslim slavers are the, the worst, most prolific slavers in history. And they would go in and take an area, rape and pillage it, take the girls as sex slaves, and they would take the boys back to uh, Muslim countries and turn them into Janissaries. They would forcibly yeah. convert them to Islam. And, and and imagine this. Imagine the hell of my ancestors living in Reggio Calabria, losing their children to slavery, and, and then the boys are taken away. And then maybe 20, 25 years later, you're fighting at Malta or Lepanto, these young Muslim boys who are actually your own children, who, who are Janissary slaves, yeah. and you're killing them. And, and in some cases, they were galley slaves as well, in, in the galleys of ships. So the I quote in the book, one of the Muslim sultans who is kind of perplexed at this sort of Western Christian hand-wringing <laughs> about the immorality of slavery. He said, well, I, 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 don't, I don't understand this. I, I, I mean, you, you conquer a country and, 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 and you take slaves. This is just what you do. This yeah. is what human beings have done since the dawn of humanity. I, I, I don't get this. It was Christians who it was Christians who changed this, and especially our church. Yes, yes. And again, your book is is chock full of references to well, we were mentioning it earlier to popes and councils, and you go back to the sixth century with statement from councils. You make an unusual sort of statement early on in the book. You you say it, probably I haven't got it all. There's probably much more to be unearthed as historical research continues to to find earlier statements. Oh yeah, we're going to find more and more. And in fact, when I started this book, um, only then did I realize that there had been a book done by a priest named Joel Panzer. And in fact, um, Scott Hahn informed me of the book. So Scott knew Father Panzer. And he did, this would have been mid-1990s, and I, I commend him in the acknowledgments and several times mm-hmm. in the book for being able to find what he found basically pre-internet. He started his book around the year 1435. As I said, I found a papal statement prior to that in 1434. And I was able to find councils going, church councils going back to 506. I was able to find statements from 
uh, church saints. I mean, St. Patrick, uh, St. Patrick had been a slave, right? Gregory the Great. And more and more information is coming up. And in many cases, I found just in the course of looking into an individual here and there and discovering, oh, wow, uh, this guy, St. John DeMatha, around the year 1000, founded a whole order dedicated to ransoming slaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Peter Nolasco, about the same time, they called him the ransomer. Gee, I never even heard of this guy. On and on and on and on. So more and more documents are going to be found. They're going to be posted online. And I think whoever does this same research project 30 years from now will find um, much more than what I found in uh, you know, 2022, 2023. And just in case uh, some of the people listening to this aren't don't make the connection, when you say you've traced this back to 1434, that's before the discovery of the new world, which is, right. you know, when people are blaming Columbus wrongly, but when they, when they date that as sort of the beginning of the era of slavery, first of all, it's not the beginning. It, it had been going on for time immemorial, but, but secondly, the church was already on the case. Well, and, and think about that. So you mentioned the significance of October 7th when, when we're recording this on, a, on October 6th. Uh, well, October 9th is Columbus Day. Mm-hmm. That's on Monday. And uh, when you open your Google on that day, it's not going to say uh, Happy Columbus Day. It's going to say Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. And, and our president is even celebrate, celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day. And if they only knew that the indigenous peoples had black slaves. Yes. Didn't just enslave one another with savage cruelty, but but they owned black slaves. In fact, the five so-called civilized tribes, the Cherokee, the Chickasaw, the Choctaw, the Creek, the Seminole Indians, they all had black American slaves. They were brutal to those slaves. Uh, The cases of them, amputating feet so slaves couldn't run away, um, torturing slaves. There are, to this day, Phil, there are lawsuits by Black American descendants of those Black American African slaves against the Indian tribes to try to get compensation for how they were treated. Some of these Indian tribes fought with the Confederacy in the Civil War. Some of them, even after the Civil War ended and the Emancipation Proclamation, still owned slaves. And and they were brutal slave masters. None of this will be talked about on Indigenous Peoples Day. No. And that was that was four hundred years before Columbus. Right. Okay. So it is it is outrageous the ignorance and the double standards. Then again, just to continue that thought, you cite the work of what was then the Holy Office, now the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, in 1686, with an instruction saying African slavery is illicit. So 1686, that's, again, before the issue came up here, really. Well, that's right. And I go back before that, Pope Paul III, 1537, Sublimus Deus. In fact, he had a statement in there 
against the enslavement of what he called all people yet to be discovered in the future by Christians. <laughs> I mean, it was, it didn't just apply to say black Indians in the Canary Islands uh-huh. in 1434, 1435. By the way, 1434 is 10 years be- before the transatlantic slave trade even began, which it typically starts in 1444. So, so this was like a blanket condemnation even before then. And the church was calling for excommunication of people who owned slaves and was also calling for reparations. Yeah. Reparations, which That's shouldn't striking. surprise us because when you go to confession and you confess a sin, you are asked to make reparation to the person that you've harmed. Yeah. So, so it, 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 it's something that makes much more sense than you or I calling on, you know, me, Paul Kengor, who lives in Grove City, Pennsylvania in 2023, whose ancestors were in Italy in the early 1900s, to make reparation for slavery 200 years ago doesn't make sense. But to ask somebody at the time who had slaves to release them to then make reparation, that makes sense. And our church asked people to do that. So we supported that um, hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago. It's also part of what's going on here, of course, is you can cite the example of Catholics who own slaves, Catholic institutions like Georgetown University that own slaves. And um, I think you put your finger on it a minute ago that it's not a revelation to Catholics that some Catholics are sinners. Right. Yeah. And and those those places, I mean, that is that's not the fault of the church. Right. That that's that's the fault of people failing to live up to the church's standards. And uh, Georgetown University in 1838 was reportedly, allegedly involved in the sale of something like 270 slaves that benefited the university. And Georgetown apologized for it a few years ago. And uh, as they should, assuming that, that, that they're indeed guilty of what, um, of of what has been alleged. I, I, I mentioned this in the book and I, and, and I accept that they were wrong, and I quote the, the president of Georgetown University, but I didn't, I didn't do any digging into it myself. But I would note here that uh, I also cite in the book entire orders founded 800 years earlier <laughs> that were established for the purpose of ending slavery. So uh, are, the, are the church's people perfect? No, but, that, but that's why they're in the church, because they're sinners. Yes. And part of the reason why you needed to write this book, don't you think, is because of a persistent anti-Catholic prejudice that wants to pin crimes on the church, whether or not they fit. That's exactly right. And, and in fact, I unfortunately opened the book with, um, with a statement from, uh, from Nicholas V on uh, that around, in fact, there are a number of these, but he was a pope around the time of the fall of Constantinople, 1492. And it's one or two statements from him that look bad. They admittedly don't look good. Yes. And, and so modern scholars who want to attack the church on this issue are picking those up and using them to the exclusion of everything else as something to attack the church. And you can't do that. You, need to have, to, you have to look at the totality of the record from the very beginning to the very end. And I can tell you when I started this research, I could find statements from quote unquote scholars claiming that the Catholic church didn't get around to condemning slavery until Leo the 13th 
or in some cases, Vatican II <laughs> even. And and I look at those and think, no, you guys are off by about uh, four or 500 years. And, and you're not looking very hard. <laughs> right. You're finding what you want to find. You know? Right, right. It's egregious. I mean, you can't call it scholarship. And, and some of it's published in uh, by university presses and, and scholarly journals. Mm-hmm. And, and you look at it and you just shake your head and think, yeah, how, how can this be? I mean, how can you be this wrong? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know you have another interview lined up and I promise to get you out, but uh, I want to thank you for writing this book. And I like that last line, how can you be this wrong? Because, <laughs> because here it is in one fairly brief volume, all the evidence that you're going to need to refute some of these outrageous statements that you hear. Yeah. So thank you for being with us today and for doing this work. Well, thanks, Phil, for all that you do. I've been a fan of you for a long time. Always, I've always read you. And so it's good to finally connect. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. This is Phil Lawler speaking for the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture at Thomas More College. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation. And I hope you'll register on our website to receive information about future events hosted by the Center. If you find these recordings helpful, please help us to continue our work by making a tax-deductible contribution. We cannot continue to provide fine programming without the support of people like you, and we're grateful for your help. To receive updates on our activities or to make a contribution to our work, see our webpage at restorationchristianculture.org. That's all lowercase with no spaces of punctuation, restorationchristianculture.org. Thank you again.